Van Til seeks to apply this concrete line of, of, of thought to the preaching of the gospel and stipulate the way that earlier and later grace bears on the preaching of the gospel and the offer of life to an undifferentiated fallen humanity. He says this, page 77 of Common Grace in the Gospel. The universality of the gospel presentation or invitation or command all come down to the same thing, as Calvin is not afraid to use them indiscriminately. The gospel presentation, invitation, promise, or command comes to mankind in general. It comes to sinful mankind, to mankind that has once before, when placed in a way of salvation, been offered salvation. It comes to a generality that has once in common, in one moment, in one man, rejected the offer of eternal life through Adam. Mankind is now, to use words corresponding to the earlier stage, placed in a way of death. Now, Van Til insists here, end of quote, Van Til insists here that the invitation or command to come to Christ comes to mankind in general. The offer of the gospel in history comes to the elect and reprobate in their common sin and fall. And in their one moment of forfeiting eternal life in Adam. The commonness rests in the earlier offer of favor to all in pre-fall Adam and the later wrath toward all in post-fall Adam. That's the commonness. Once offered life and favor in Adam, now having forfeited life and favor in Adam. The gospel comes to all who have sinned in and fallen with Adam. And that group in history, intrinsically simpliciter, knows no differentiation as far as the relation to Adam is concerned. All were shown universal, common favor in pre-fall Adam. All have received wrath and curse in post-fall Adam as he stands as the federal head. So the earlier grace and the offer of favor, the later grace that is going to take in view a common wrath means that the concrete and covenantal situation is that all who have been placed in a way of death are those to whom comes a way of salvation in Christ. The all in the way of death and the all offered the way of salvation trace back to Adam pre- and post-fall. That is Van Til's point. The concrete is the covenantal. That is Van Til's concern. He goes on, Meanwhile, the fact of Christ's redemptive work in promise or in fulfillment, in promise, old covenant, in fulfillment, new covenant, the promise of redemption Promised or fulfilled in Old or New Covenant has come into the picture. 
Continuing the quote, Van Til says, Christ has not died for all men. No Remonstrant Arminianism, no Wesleyan Arminianism, no Emeraldianism, certainly no Bardianism allowed. He died only for his people. But his people are not yet his people except in the mind of God. They are, in history, still members of the sinful mass of mankind. It is with them, where they are, that contact has to be made. The offer or presentation is not to those who believe any more than to those who disbelieve. The offer comes to those who have so far neither believed nor disbelieved. It comes before that differentiation has taken place. It comes thus generally so that differentiation has meaning. Christ is the savor of life to some and the savor of death to others. Those who eventually disbelieve will be all the more inexcusable. So redemption here, in terms of the grace that comes in the context of a common wrath, this begins a process of differentiation, and the gospel comes to those not yet differentiated in history. They've been differentiated in the eternal decree, but the gospel is coming to those not yet differentiated, and this redemptive promise in the gospel is itself the instrument that differentiates. But it comes to those not yet differentiated. It comes to those who God once showed to whom God once showed universal favor in Adam before the fall. It comes to those who after the fall God shows universal wrath and it comes to them not yet differentiated and the gospel is the instrument of this differentiation. God ordained only his elect for salvation. And Christ has died only for the elect. He's emphatic. He's not teaching any kind of universalism. No species of it. But he says they are not his people in the sense of present personal union in the Ordo Salutis. They are his people in the sense they have been ordained to eternal salvation, predestinarian union. They are his people in the sense that Jesus has died for them and has been raised for them, past historical union. But they are not yet God's people in terms of spirit-worked faith that unites to Christ. So the offer of the gospel, Ventil says, comes to those who are not yet historically, personally, existentially differentiated. It comes to those who have not yet believed or disbelieved the gospel. In fact, it is precisely the gospel that differentiates between the elect and the reprobate. But in order for it to differentiate, Van Til insists that it must come generally to all who descend from Adam. And that 
offer is common, well-meant, sincere, and authentic to all that God has shown an earlier common favor and to all that God has shown an later common wrath. The differentiation in Christ in history assumes a bona fide commonality in Adam, pre-fall favor, post-fall wrath. Van Til goes on, quote, The analogy of Calvin's argument here to his idea of original general revelation is apparent. As God's general revelation, natural and positive, plus the probationary command, originally invited all men to eternal life, as Calvin puts it, and men of whom God had determined from all eternity that they should not inherit eternal life, yet were rendered inexcusable by the invitation when they rejected it, so now again a second time, while it is still as certain as ever that they shall be lost eventually. And while historically by their sin they have placed themselves in the way of death, they are rendered the more inexcusable by the gospel invitation and have added to their condemnation by their second rejection of God. Ventil is helpful here when he speaks of an analogy. God extends to the reprobate favor before the fall in the first Adam even though they were not elected to salvation. God extends to the reprobate favor after the fall in the second Adam, even though they are not elected to salvation. That's the concrete analogy. That's how earlier grace shapes later grace for Van Til. In both the first and second offers, God extends favor to the reprobate. There's a bona fide offer of favor to the reprobate in Adam. There's a bona fide offer of salvation to the reprobate in Christ. But that bona fide offer derives from their common identity in Adam before and after the fall. Ventil takes this concrete step of reasoning one step further. He says this on page 78 quote, their case the reprobate, is not inherently more difficult than the case of the elect, end quote. Here's the same point from a different point of view, from a different perspective. God extends favor to the reprobate in Adam and then favor a second time in Christ when they are eternally and immutably objects of wrath. But what about the elect? Think about this with me. On the one hand, Ephesians 1, 4 through 5 and 11 teach without equivocation that God chose the elect in the Son to be holy and blameless before him, verse 4, in love predestined them to the adoption of sons, verse 5, to the praise of his glorious grace in the beloved, verse 6. The election is an expression of of the immutable will of the one who works everything according to the counsel of his will, verse 11. So on the one side, the identity of the elect has been fixed forever. Ephesians 1, 4 through 6 and 11 makes that case emphatically and without equivocation. Yet, 
as included in Adam's sin, in a relation of wrath to God, the elect are concretely represented by Adam and are, by virtue of his sin, quote, by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, 2-3. While the elect are objects of God's electing love and predestined to the adoption of sons from all eternity, Ephesians 2-3 says that they are children of wrath like the rest of mankind, undifferentiated in their relation to Adam, differentiated in the decree, undifferentiated in their relation to Adam. It is that precise nexus that moves us in the line of concrete thinking. The elect are eternally differentiated from the reprobate, yet when represented by Adam and included with him in sin and fall, they are undifferentiated. So, the differentiating love of God in eternal predestination does not undermine the undifferentiated commonality of elect and reprobate in fallen Adam. The elect are both eternally differentiated objects of God's eternal love and the historically undifferentiated objects of God's wrath as fallen in Adam and not yet joined to Christ. This analogy accents the concrete line of thinking and it avoids what I like to call master concept deductivism. We don't make master concept deductions from the decree that violate the integrity of history. And we don't make master concept deductions from covenant history that violate the integrity of the decree. We affirm both because what? The ontological trinity is our concrete universal, because the decree of God is our concrete expression of the ontological trinity, and history is the concrete expression of that decree that determines whatsoever comes to pass. And so he asks this question on page 79. How can we understand that they, the reprobate, were taken first into a generality with the elect and said to be good? Was not God's attitude to them displayed in that instance? Of course, in God's mind, there was difference at the time. They were to him the children of wrath, even while they were pronounced good by himself in the earliest stage of their history. God's wrath against the reprobate in the immutable decree of reprobation does not contravene God's favor to them in Adam. The well-meant offer of favor, the well-meant offer of salvation does not violate an immutable decree. Now Van Til makes two concluding observations, and I just want to read them and comment up, uh, uh, comment on them ever so briefly. On pages 92 through 94, Van Til talks about the fallen character of man and nature. 
They are together fallen and expressive of the wrath and curse of God. This goes to our point in the previous lecture on the Holy Spirit, natural revelation, common grace, and the new relation in sin. Listen to what Van Til says. I will not comment extensively on this. He says, another parallel suggests itself. We are to regard the natural man as we are to regard nature, or whether rather we are to regard nature as we regard man. There's a parallelism between the two. They go through a similar history. They go through the same history. They are aspects of the one curse of events reaching toward the great climax of the end of the age. Both were originally created good, but it was good that was on the move. Through the fall of man, both came under the wrath of God. Nature, as well as man, is subject to vanity and corruption. Romans 8.19 and 8.22 But the vanity and corruption which rest on man and nature by the curse of God are also on the move. We must observe the tendency in both if we would describe either for what it is. Men ought, says Calvin, to be able to see the Creator's Uh, munificence in creation, men ought in the second place to see God's wrath upon nature. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of those who hold the truth in unrighteousness. The whole creation, the whole creation, groans and travails in pains together. Thus, there is a downward tendency in creation. Men ought to conclude, argues Calvin, that history will end in judgment. But now, as Van Til takes that insight, in light of all that we've developed, listen to what he says about the nature of the one to whom the gospel comes in time. This is a rather lengthy quote from 79-80. It was not some abstraction like creatureliness in them, that was the object of God's favor. As concrete beings eventually to be haters of God, but not yet in history haters of God, rather as yet in Adam good before God, the reprobate are the objects of God's favor. But all this was conditional. God gave them, as it were, a sample of what would be theirs if they obeyed representatively in Adam. It was, as it were, a land-lease proposition. How could God offer eternal life to the reprobate in Adam if he did not finally mean to give it to them? That exactly is history. The moment has significance and can have significance only against the background of the counsel of God. Threats and promises are real and genuinely revelatory of the attitude of God just because the counsel of God is in back of history. We should not be surprised at the generality of the invitation to salvation. We should not argue that the general invitation reveals nothing of the attitude of God on the ground that God's particular will is back of all. He then quotes from Calvin, Wherefore God is as much said to have pleasure in and to will this eternal life as to have pleasure in the repentance, and he has pleasure in the latter 
because he invites all men to it by his word. Now, all this is in perfect harmony with his secret and eternal counsel, by which he is decreed to convert none but his own elect. None but God's elect, therefore, turn from their wickedness, and yet the adorable God is not on these accounts to be considered variable or capable of change. Because as a lawgiver, he enlightens all men with the external doctrine of conditional life. In this primary manner, he calls or invites all men to eternal life. But in the latter case, he brings the eternal life to those whom he has willed according to his eternal purpose, regenerating them by his Spirit, as eternal Father, his own children only. That quote, beginning with wherefore, is from Calvin. Let me summarize this material. There's more that can be said, but never less. The differentiation in the eternal decree included potentially and conditionally the free act of Adam as federal head. The covenant of works in the Garden of Eden was a well-meant offer of beatitude from the divine side to Adam and to all in him for perfect, personal, exact, and entire obedience under the covenant of works. If obedient, that universal and indiscriminate favor to all men would have been brought to consummation, and if disobedient as he was, the process of discrimination through the gospel would begin until it reaches its climax in the consummation at the end of the age. The gospel coming to the commonality of all fallen men is the instrument for the process of differentiation by which all and only those God has chosen will be brought to him in glory and all that God has ordained to death will be taken to the abyss, to the place of judgment. What God has ordained from the foundation of the world will be brought to full fruition in time. But in the meantime, there is a well-meant offer of salvation and life to all without differentiation to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. At every point, this must be maintained because History has its significance. Secondary causes have authenticity. And the gospel has meaning just because the ontological trinity has ordained and controls whatsoever comes to pass and reveals himself in time. And after the fall, uses his gospel as the great grand instrument of a process of differentiation that leads to the full disclosure of all that God ordained from before the foundation of the world. This, at least, is the summary of the concrete line of reasoning that Van Til advocates. And in the next lecture, we're going to turn and speak more fully and more robustly about the doctrine of fearless anthropomorphism so that we do not devolve into an abstract or correlativist conception of the God who reveals himself.